Would you turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 11 with me this evening? Judges chapter 11. Gideon was a capable believer. He was a capable leader. He was a man of faith. He's a man that God could use. But after the victory over the Midianites, the people asked him to be king, and he declined. So what happens when the godly, fruitful leaders neglect to lead like they are capable? They give way to the unworthy leaders, the brambles in society, like Abimelech. Abimelech was a bramble. It appears that Jephthah is as well. People turn to whoever will lead them. They're happy to to follow these worthless leaders. And we'll see an example of that again this evening. We look at this passage. Let's let's read the passage together. Judges chapter 11. I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went, out at, they went out with him. It came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, so that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the son of Ammon, sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the kings, king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably now. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab, and they camped beyond the Arnon, But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, and king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. 
The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are then are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what uh, Shemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord, our God, has driven out before us, we will possess it. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While well, Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aurora and its villages and all the cities that are at the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. And he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. In desperate times, Godless people happily seek the leadership of unworthy leaders. They actually are willing to follow unworthy leaders. And I think Jephthah is an unworthy leader. We see why in the first three verses. What makes a person unworthy to lead God's people? Well, Jephthah had a marred family origin. His mother was a prostitute. We learn about that in verse uh, 2. Excuse me, verse 1. He was the son of a harlot. But that did not make him unworthy. However, in the eyes of the people, he was unfit. They saw him as unfit. His half-brothers wanted nothing to do with him. You're the son of another woman. And so they sent Jephthah away. The thing that did make him unfit, not necessarily his family origin, but it was that he was a man of poor character. Look at verse 3. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah and they went about with him. Worthless fellows. Apparently Jephthah, who is extremely skilled in battle, as we'll see later, went out and led these worthless men uh, into some criminal activity. They went out to do things. And because they were so good in, in this sort of activity, they were going to be used later uh, to, to help deliver Israel. He was likely the leader of some organized crime. The primary thing that God is looking for in a leader is not military ability, although Jephthah was very good at that. Military ability does not make a person a good leader. It was what God is looking for is a man of character. But when the people of Israel became desperate, they were willing to take even the most worthy, worthless, unworthy leader to rescue them. What do you think would have been the proper thing to do? When the worthy leaders neglect to step up, people like Gideon, who was a man of faith, when those kind of leaders fail to step up and fail to, to develop other leaders, when God's people are in a desperate state, what should they do? They should have called on God, shouldn't they? 
Israel instead tried to take matters into their own hands. And so in verses 4-11, through they recruit this unworthy leader. I often think about this when it comes to filling positions in our church and as other churches do the same. So many times we think that the position has to be filled. Some positions do have to be filled, by the way. And so, because of that, because we're so confident that a specific position has to be filled, we're willing to recruit people who are unqualified to lead. And they may do an adequate job for a while, but over time, they bring reproach on the name of Christ. And the problem is not necessarily in the person who was called to be the leader, although they will bear responsibility. The problem, I think, is in the people who put that person in the position of leadership. In other words, sometimes we have positions that we think need to be filled because we have programs that we want to have run that we think are necessary for the life of a church, and so we force some person to fill that position who's not qualified to fill it. And sometimes who's not willing to fill it. And they're kind of forced into the position. When I think what we should be doing is asking, is this necessary for our church? I don't have any specific program in mind in case you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what's he doing here trying to cut programs here? No, that's not the idea. But I think we we do need to reevaluate what is critical to the life of our church. Because sometimes if we make program program a specific program at the center of what we're doing, then we'll we'll go to whatever means necessary to get that program working. I heard about the ministry of a larger church who wanted to offer a service um, to, to offer some sort of service for the younger kids, lower and upper elementary kids during the morning service. And so they let the church know about the desire and asked if people would be willing. Uh, to help in this because it can't be run on its own, right? And when the volunteers signed up, they only had enough for a small number of those kids to be taken care of during the morning service and to be taught adequately. And so what they decided to do is instead of, well, we want to have something for both the lower and the upper elementary, so what we're going to do is just We don't have quite enough leaders for all of them, so let's just get some people who maybe aren't as qualified, but maybe they could cut it there. You know, they they cut the mustard, and we'll get them. Instead, what they decided to do was only offer it for the lower elementary, and the upper elementary was going to be left to come and sit in the main service. You see, sometimes we put such a premium on a program or ministry that we don't think about what the program or ministry needs in order to be adequately run. And I think what this church did was a wise thing to do. Part of the responsibility falls on us as a church to develop new leaders, but we need to recognize that if leaders aren't there, then we need to reevaluate the program to see if it is biblically required or biblically necessary for the mission of our church. And just very briefly, what is the mission of our church? What are we here to do? Well, Jesus tells us very clearly at the end of His ministry on the earth, go and do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. 
you know, whatever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. So there's the make disciples. That's our primary ministry. And so we need to see if some of these things that we have maybe had for a long time or we've seen other church do, churches do and, and we think that that's necessary in order to whatever, then we need to reevaluate whether they are really biblically required or necessary for the mission of our church. Too many times as churches we try to mimic the programs of other churches that are larger than us and we can fall into to big problems. Back in the 70s the big things was for churches the big thing for churches was to start a school that is churches of a reasonable size they would add a Christian school and don't get me wrong I love Christian schools I graduated from one we send our kids to one Jennifer graduated from one we think they're great but some of these churches added a school and their focus turned away from listen to this it turned away from making disciples and it turned to running a school spoke to a pastor of a church whose school closed down recently, a Christian school, and he said, you know, it was kind of sad to see it go, but it was amazing how much more energy the people of our church had to focus on ministry within the church. Because every time they needed something, they needed people to fill a position or they needed people to help out, guess where the people of the church were asked to help? In the school. Now, the school was a part of the church, but that's not the primary reason that we exist as a church. So the school actually became a problem. Whenever there was a need before, he he told me, all the focus was on what the school needed. And it's amazing now how much more energy and time people have to do ministry within the church. So we have to be careful about adding a cookie-cutter program to our church's repertoire just because other churches do that. That is not the answer. When we do that, I think we miss the point of what the church is supposed to be about. It's not about the programs primarily. The programs only support what the church is supposed to be doing. It's not about whether we have a vibrant youth ministry or not. It is about making disciples of the Christians that belong to our church. It's about reaching lost people with the Gospel. It's about partnering with missionaries for the sake of the Gospel. It's about glorifying God in all of it. That's what our church is supposed to be about. That's what every church is supposed to be about. So if the leader, uh, so the point is, if the leaders aren't there, we don't necessarily need the program. Because what can happen is we can appoint unworthy leaders. Jephthah is a capable leader, but I think he's actually unworthy for the task that he's about to face. Verses 4 through 11. While Jephthah was, I think, an unworthy leader, he was capable of doing what Israel needed. The primary thing that God is looking for is not military acumen, it's, it's character. God would rather deliver a nation through a man of faith who has no skill in battle than to deliver a nation through an unworthy leader who had great military school, skill. That's what Jephthah is. He's a man who has little faith, and yet he's very good at military skill. As Israel, in verses 4-11, through 11, recognizes the severity of their problem, they turn to this man, Jephthah, this social outcast, rather than to God. 
The elders of Gilead are probably Jephthah's half-brothers since their father also was Gilead. And they call for Jephthah after having sent him away. We, we don't want anything to do with you. Now they start to see him in his, his apparent ability to, to, um, to do well in military victories in his small field. They ask him to come back. Instead of us reading that God raised up a leader, what, what you should notice is that in several of these first all the main judges we've seen so far, the main deliverers, it was God who raised them up. It was God who raised up Gideon. It was God who raised up Deborah. There's, nothing, there's no talk of God raising this man, Jephthah, up. It's about them going out, I think, apart from God and getting this man, much like King Saul. People raise up the leader themselves. Notice what they say in verse 6. Come... And be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Seems to be apart from God's involvement. Look at verse 11. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. This sounds very similar to me to what happened with King Saul. They saw all the nations who had these kings. They said, hey, we could, we could use a king. So they raise up Saul. They did it for the wrong purposes. And even though God allowed Saul to be king, and get this point, because this is important for tonight, and God sent His Spirit upon Saul, it doesn't mean that it was right. I think the same thing is true here. God will send His Spirit on Jephthah, but that doesn't mean that God approves. Now when we say that God sent His Spirit upon him, notice where I get that from, verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. There we might think, well, that's, that means Jephthah's a believer. The Spirit came upon him. That's what happens to us at salvation. That's not what's happening here. I've mentioned this before, especially in the book of Judges. It, it becomes very clear that when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a person in the Old Testament, it's, through an, it, it, it's coming on a leader. It started with Moses, then the 70 leaders of Israel, and then Joshua, and then, um, and then the Judges. And what's happening, and then the kings. And what's happening there is not that the Spirit is coming on them to save them, but to do what? It is to give them the ability to, to lead as a king. And so God can actually send the Spirit on, not in a salvific way, but in, in, in a way that, that causes them to be able to have the military capability, administrative ability, to be able to lead properly. And He can even do it to an unbeliever. And the best example of that, I would just encourage you to read 1 Samuel 16, 14, and 15. And there what you're going to find is that King Saul, the Spirit of the Lord, had already come on King Saul, but then it came off of King Saul and went on to whom? On to David, right? So if that's salvation, we have a problem, right? If the Spirit coming on King Saul is salvation, we have a problem with our theology, don't we? We're saying that we can lose our salvation. King Saul lost his salvation. That's not what the Scripture is saying. Instead, it's some sort of administrative ability, some spiritual anointing that comes on him to allow him to be God's appointed ruler at that time. When it came off of him, it went on to David, and now he's the appointed ruler until he dies and passes on to Solomon. God passes the Spirit on to Solomon. That would continue on all the way through 
and the Spirit came upon Jesus at His baptism. Certainly that cannot be salvation, right? No, it's not talking about salvation. So when we say the Spirit of the Lord came upon God's appointed ruler, it's talking about what theologians call the theocratic anointing. The God-appointed ruler is receiving some administrative ability, special administrative ability through the Holy Spirit of God. So, I say all that to say, while the Spirit does come upon Jephthah, it's not necessarily God's approval. Just like with King Saul. Not necessarily God's approval. Now, God can still work through that. Praise God that He works through and and makes good out of unworthy leaders. But that's not the point. What we're trying to see is that that the people were happy to follow a worthless leader. Jephthah's a little leery about their request to make him leader since they ditched him at a young age because of his illegitimate, illegitimate birth in verses 7-11. through 11. And so he makes sure that they're actually going to follow through on their promise. And so Jephthah um, makes sure that, that this is a, a, a formal covenant. And that's what I think verse 11 is talking about. Look at the end of verse 11. Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord. That kind of sounds like Jephthah's a spiritual man there. But I think the point is that he's he's ratifying this covenant, making sure that it's 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 actually enacted, it's it's made uh, true, it's it's agreed on. We could think about it like in a court of law, you know, that I swear before the Lord that this is true. I I you know I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, that kind of thing. This is them coming into a covenant together, not necessarily any spiritual um, activity going on here. Jephthah is an unworthy leader. He's a capable leader. Um, and in verses 12 through 28, we see that he's a diplomatic leader. He's he's a wise man when it comes to handling negotiations. Not only could Jephthah handle a sword, he could also handle a, polit- a political platform. He was a shrewd leader. Instead of moving right into battle, we could see Jephthah just go, "All right, let's take on these sons of Ammon. Bring on the army. I've been here before. Let's do this." Instead of risking death of some of the men, he first decides to try to make a peaceful resolution with diplomacy. And he says to the king of the sons of Ammon, listen, what do you have against us? What's your problem? And the the king says, well, you know what? You took our land. Israel took our land. And Jephthah says, there are three reasons that the land belongs to Israel. And he, so he sends through his messenger to the king of the sons of Ammon. And he says, the first reason, verses 12-23, through 23, is that God gave this land to us. How did God give this land? Remember, Israel's coming out of Egypt and they're wandering around the wilderness and they tried to pass through several of these different lands. Edom and Moab. And what do the leaders say? No, you're not coming through. So what does Israel do? They end up in Kadesh and they kind of settle there. And uh, over time, they own the land. God gives them the land. Uh, Jephthah recognizes this and says, there's no reason why we can't own the land. God gave it to us. The second reason that Israel owns the land is because the Ammonites had it coming since they fought against God's people. In verses 24 and 25, he says, Did you not possess what Shemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. Are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel? Did he ever fight against them? 
Jephthah is saying, basically, you received some lands from your God, we received some lands from our God, and you had it coming to us. You, you, uh, you tried to fight against our people and God gave us the victory and so we own this land. Verse 26, he gives his final reason why Israel owns it and that is that the Ammonites know that Israel owns it. Look at verse 26. While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aurora and its, vil- and its villages and in all the cities there on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? In other words, we've had this land for 300 years and you haven't done anything. And that implies that you agree that we own this land. If you thought this was not our land, why did you allow us to remain in it for 300 years? Why did you not fight for it earlier? Verse 27, we have a summary of his statement and a response in verse 28. Sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent them. So, all this negotiation works out for really nothing. The guy wasn't even listening. Um, but I think it was a wise thing to do to, before risking all these lives in battle. He, he tried to settle it peacefully. In verse 29 through 33, we see that he's a capable military warrior. Verses 29 through 33. We read verse 29. Let's read verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I'll offer it to, uh, I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Meneth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Kiramim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. The reason that Jephthah is successful in delivering Israel is not because he is a worthy leader. The reason that King Saul won battles was not because he was a worthy leader, but because God chose to use both of these men despite their unworthy character. God sent His Spirit upon Jephthah. God is the one who had the victory. And that's the amazing part about our God. He can work through ordinary and even sinful people to accomplish His purposes, to rescue His people. Now, in verses 30 and 31, you saw Jephthah's vow. We'll talk about that next week. But what I want you to notice is verse 32. It is the Lord that gave Ammon into Jephthah's hands. In desperate times, godless people happily follow the leadership of unworthy men. In desperate times, godless people happily follow the leadership of unworthy men. But the good news for us is that God is still on the throne. This certainly is not what God prefers. He does not prefer to to deliver His people through unworthy men or unworthy leaders. He wants to use leaders, but but when unworthy leaders rise up, that doesn't tie up God's hands. God will still have His way. God often uses unlikely people to accomplish His purposes. The, The book of Genesis 
in, in our study of the book of Genesis, I was amazed at how unworthy many of these leaders were, that how sinful many of these leaders were. Now certainly we had great examples of leaders like Abraham and Joseph, but we also had some pretty horrible ones as well, like Judah and and even Jacob at times. You know the type of people God likes to use? You know what the type of people that God loves to use? It's those who are faithful. Not who have a lot of knowledge or skill necessarily, but those who are faithful. Turn to Luke 16. Luke 16. And I want to show you something that you probably already know. Just remind you of an important truth. What God is looking for. Luke chapter 16. Here Jesus gives a parable to His disciples. He says in verse 1, There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Here's what we're going to see in this parable. If God is going to use you to be faithful in great things, if God is going to use you to be a faithful, godly leader, then you have to first be faithful in little. This man not doing so well right now. He's about to have his job taken from him. Look at verse 4. I know what I shall do, he says to himself, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. He said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to them, Take your bill and write eighty. Now, look up here. How do you think the master is going to respond? How do you think the master is going to respond to this manager who takes what is owed to the master? The manager is not the one who owns all these things. How do you think the master is going to respond? We would expect him to be angry, right? He, he cut some of these bills in half. What are you doing? But look at verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Wait a second. His master praised him? Why? Why did his master praise him? Look what the text says again. Because he acted shrewdly or wisely. Certainly the master would have liked to have received the full amount, but the point of the parable is that he liked what the servant did here. Now, here's the application for us at the end of verse 8. For the sons of this age are more shrewd or wise in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. In verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, is Jesus saying that He likes conniving business practices? No. The point is, according to um, an explanation that I've uh, studied from Dr. Carson, Dr. Don Carson. He says that the servant manager used the resources that were under his control to prepare for his future. This is why 
the master liked what the servant did. He was preparing for his future. And the point is that how much more should we, end of verse 8, be as sons of light and use the resources under our control? Not in unwise or, or I should say, unethical ways. It's not what he's calling for. But he's saying, how much more should, if they use unethical means to prepare for their future, how much more should we as sons of light prepare for our future? So what about you? Are you investing anything in heaven right now? Are you working to be faithful in what you do have? Pastor Doran would often say that, that we can't take our resources with us. And isn't that true? We can't take them with us. But, he would say, we can send them on ahead. That we can store up for ourselves. Isn't that what Matthew 6 says? We can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So we can't take all of our stuff with us, but we can send treasures on ahead. So they're waiting for us when we get there. The point is that we can use the resources that we have on earth to build up a storehouse of treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break in and steal. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. The point of this parable in Luke is not that we can buy heaven. Not that we can earn God's favor, but rather that we are much like this man. We are unresponsible or irresponsible managers of God's resources if we are not planning for our eternal home. Notice verse 10. The point becomes even more clear. Verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true rich, uh, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Here's the point of the parable. Those who are faithful with little things on this earth will be given greater responsibilities of service. And I believe not just on this earth, but also in heaven for all of eternity. Those who are faithful with little things will be faithful in much. Let me ask you, do you have aspirations of doing great things for God one day? Maybe reaching a lot of people for Christ? Maybe a full-time Christian ministry? Being a missionary in a difficult land? Having a prosperous business so that you can more adequately support the work of Christ here and around the world? Maybe you, maybe you have aspirations of raising godly children? Maybe it's to be the leader in the church or teach a Sunday school class? Those are all great desires. Here's what I would ask you. What are you doing with the limited resources that you have right now? What are you doing with the money that God has entrusted to you this year? What are you doing with the relationships that you have now? What are, the, what are you doing with the, the responsibilities of ministry that you have right now? I'm often reminded of an illustration that my pastor growing up used to give, Marvin Hallbaker. 
He said there's a pastor who visited a farmer and asked the farmer, and you might have heard this one before because I've used it before. He said, if you had 100 chickens to the farmer, do you think you'd give 50 to the church? The farmer said, oh, pastor, you know I would. He says to the farmer, Farmer John, if you had 40 cows, would you give 20 of those cows to the church? Oh, pastor, you know if I had 40 cows, I would give 20 to the church. He says, Farmer John, if you had two pigs, do you think you'd give one to the church? And the farmer says, Pastor, that's not fair. You know I have only two pigs. So many times we're willing to give God a huge portion in our dreams, right? If we win the lottery, please don't play the lottery, but if we come upon a big sum of money, maybe an inheritance, we would definitely give X percent to the church. We have these huge dreams of doing great things for God. But in reality, with what we have right now, we give Him very little. And it doesn't just apply to money, does it? We may have huge dreams for doing all these things I've mentioned, these huge acts of service for God. If I was in this position, I would do X. I would do all these great things for God. And here's what God's saying to us tonight. What are we doing with what we already have? Are we working hard for the sake of Christ with the little that we have? Be faithful in little and I will allow you to have responsibility over much. If I didn't have this health problem, I could do great things for Christ. If I weren't so old, I could do great things for the sake of missions. If I had more money, I'd give it to the church. I'd give it to missions. And I would maybe even serve in the foreign field. If God is going to entrust you with great things, you must be faithful in the little things that He's entrusted to you now. Are you being faithful in your home? Are you being faithful in this church? Are you being faithful at your job? Are you being faithful with your money, your time, your energy? Work to be faithful in those things first before you expect God to allow you to be faithful in much. The antidote to a people that is hungry for leadership, even if it's of the unworthy variety, is to work to become a principled people. What Israel needed was not a person who would just lead them. They needed to become a a group of people who were principled and understanding, who were faithful in little things, and who were working to train up leaders who were faithful in, in, in much who are praying and asking God to to raise up leaders. And those are the kinds of leaders that God loves to use. He's not looking for people with great skill. He's not looking for people who are just you know, far and away better than everyone else in, in their line of work. He's looking for people who are faithful in the little things. Let's pray. Father, You know that that this application tonight hits very close to home for me. I have aspirations of doing great things for you through this church, seeing you grow this church and, and advance your name through the people of this church.
And yet, You've given me so much to be faithful in now. And and uh, it's easy to overlook my responsibilities now and to be a bit discontent with, with uh, the progression. Lord, help me to be faithful in what You have given me. Help me to be faithful in my family, in this church, my job. Give me strength to, to obey. And, and Lord, I pray that You would accomplish great things uh, so that You could be glorified. Lord, I pray for the same for each person here. It's not an accident that they made it here tonight. Lord, they have hearts that are desiring to serve You and they want to do great things for You. And so I pray that You would help them see the importance of, of being faithful in the little things. Not cutting corners. Not trying to overcome or be removed from the suffering or the difficulties, the trials that actually are refining their faith but to actually seek Your help as they walk through them. Lord, would You strengthen us tonight through the power of Your Word and help us to be able to apply it specifically to our lives, to our homes, to our church. And Lord, we pray that You'd help us to be, as a church, very concerned about what kind of leaders are are put in place. Lord, we know we can't see the future. We can't we can't um, even see everything that's present within a person's heart, but we don't want to be a people who are just passive in who we appoint as leaders. We want to be people who are faithful to Your Word and who are consistent in the way that we develop and, and raise up leaders so we see You do it. Or we want You to be glorified in, in the work that's done at this church. Help us to evaluate these things and to think carefully about them and to to pray for, for more grace. We, we need You every hour as we sang earlier. Give us the grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.